We teach the Bible. That's it. The mission of Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld, the ministries of Laugh Again with Phil Calloway, our young adult ministry in doubt with Isaac Dagno. At the very core, the purpose is the same. Dr. Newfeld wrote, Therefore, we teach the Bible carefully, reverently, believingly, and with an urgent appeal to the listener. The Bible can do what all other personal efforts cannot. The Bible reaches the lost, calls back the wandering, heals the hurting, offers hope and strengthens the believer to stand firm in the faith. The Bible leading to the gospel is the only message we have to this and every generation. Could we ask you to consider supporting these efforts generously this month during our fiscal year-end campaign? Your gift means so much. Call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or donate online at backtothebible.ca. Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and thanks for joining Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're continuing in our series on the book of Revelation called The Triumph of the Lamb, Volume 2. So let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 8, verses 1 to 6, with a message entitled, Hungering for Righteousness. One of our Lord's Beatitudes, recorded in Matthew 5, verse 6, says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I suspect that most of those listening to my voice have never experienced hunger or thirst. I'm not talking about the growling in our stomachs between lunch and supper. I'm talking about malnutrition, the threat of death. I once had a pastor from Rwanda staying at our house, and he told me about famine. I'll never forget what he said. He said, hunger will cause a man to do anything, even unspeakable things. And that, of course, is because there comes a point in time when all that a man thinks about is food. He dreams about it, and the longing simply consumes every other function. You know, with that in mind, I think about Jesus' words about hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Are there really those who become so consumed with righteousness that it dominates their thinking and their dreams, a hungering that's so strong that they would contemplate any action that leads to the acquiring of righteousness? In our study in Revelation, we've come to chapter 8, where we will see the picture of the sum total of the prayers of the saints cried out before God. And as we read this passage, we're reminded of the parable that Jesus told of the unrighteous judge. Listen to the conclusion of that parable as recorded in Luke 18, 7-8. And will not God give justice to his elect, who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? See, Revelation 8 will present us with a picture of the altar of incense, with the prayers of God's people rising before God as they stand at the precipice of history and the coming of the day of the Lord. Now, I'm going to come back to that, but for now, let's step back. Revelation chapter 8 presents us with one of the great transition moments in this book. Up until now, the entire drama of the book has centered on the breaking of the seven seals that contain the contents of a scroll in the hands of Christ. We've been led to assume that when the last seal is broken, we arrive at what the Old Testament prophets have called the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Chapter 7, the previous chapter, contained an interlude between the breaking of the sixth and the seventh seal and thus the opening of the book. And though I addressed the matter earlier, I think at this point it's worthwhile to take the time to again ask the question, what is it that we're reading? 
What I'm after here is the question, do the seven seals and the seven trumpets that follow overlap or are they sequential? Let's ask it another way. Do these two visions, the one, the breaking of the seals at the top of the scroll, and the other, the blowing of seven trumpets, are these just ways of looking at the same reality, or does one logically and chronologically follow after the other? In order to make sure that we understand, let me make it even more plain. From my perspective, the breaking of the seventh seal, which we will read about in this chapter, opens the scroll, and then the contents of that scroll are revealed. The beginning of the reading of the scroll is in the sounding of the seven trumpets. I believe that the trumpets are what you find in the scroll as it opens up. So that's how I read Revelation. Now, having revealed my understanding of this passage, let me admit an important truth. Some things in comparing the seals to the trumpets sound remarkably similar. For instance, both the breaking of the seals and the sounding of the trumpets in the text of Revelation is interrupted by interludes, interludes where John will explain an important theological point that we must understand before we can go on with the drama. That explains why it is that before the breaking of the seventh seal, John interrupts the drama and then takes the time to explain that God knows those who are his. He seals them and he's going to protect them from the day of his wrath. See, the point I'm making is that we will find that same thing again. After the sixth trumpet is blown, and before the seventh one will be blown, just like in the example of the seals, we're again going to find an interruption or an interlude that makes us pause and consider a very important concept before we're allowed to go on. Also, in each case, either in the breaking of the seals or the blowing of the trumpets, there is, as it were, a kind of a woe or a horror that comes upon the earth. That is, both the seals and the trumpets signals an event that follows. And so they're the same. And finally, with both the breaking of the seventh seal and the blowing of the seventh trumpet, there seems to be no content, either silence or worship, but nothing seems to happen next, which will make us have to work harder to try to understand what's being said. But as I've also shown you, there is very little similarity between the seals and the trumpets. And what I mean is that what happens when each seal is broken and each trumpet is sounded, well, it's really quite different. Furthermore, the sheer intensity of the trumpets shows that we have just ratcheted up the action. The seals show us what a broken world is like before Christ returns, but when the trumpets are blown, well, a third of mankind is killed, a third of the earth's rivers and the waters are destroyed. That's not happening during the breaking of the seals. Clearly, the trumpets represent something vastly more horrific than anything we have seen in the breaking of the seals. And all of that leads me to a conclusion that the content of the seventh seal is everything else that follows in Revelation. When the seventh seal is broken, scroll is never mentioned again. And that sounds strange at first. But if you think about it, we should all come to the same conclusion. I mean, why shouldn't that be the case? So imagine with me telling your children that you're going to read to them a bedtime story. In order to gain their interest, you tell them that that the book you're going to read is a wonderful book. It's fascinating. They're going to love it. And then you show them the book. It's a large book. It's got a beautifully ornate cover. It's exciting. And they're excited as they think about the time when you actually open the book and begin to read. But once the book is open and you start reading, well, you're not mentioning the book again. You're actually reading the story. 
all the drama beforehand gets eclipsed in the reading of the book. And so I'm assuming that when we come to chapter 8, the scroll is opened and the day of the Lord begins. Or to put it in the terms that some of my listeners are going to understand, when the seventh seal is broken, the great tribulation opens up before us. Well, all that's introduction, making sure that my hearers understand my perspective on Revelation. Okay, let's begin to read. And I'm, I'm reading Revelation chapter 8, verse 1. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Again, what are we reading? See, if I understand what John is saying, Jesus, the only one who is worthy to enact the plans of God in the great day of the Lord, Jesus has now broken the last seal. And with that, the scroll of God, bringing to a fruition the plans of God, rolls open and all of heaven realizes how impactful that moment is. See, up till now, God has been holding back the winds of his wrath common grace in which God has found ways out of his grace to bless both the wicked and the righteous. And this continues to be the order of the day, even while the horsemen of the apocalypse continue to ride. God's people have been praying, O Lord, how long until you vindicate the martyrs? O Lord, how long must the wicked prosper? So consider some of the prayers in the Psalms. Psalm 35 verse 1, how long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their destruction, my precious life from the lions. Or Psalm 74, 10 and 11. How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Or listen to Psalm 94, 1 to 7. It's a long passage, but it's worthy to be heard. O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth, repay the proud for what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words, all the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. You know, this has been the prayer of those who have hungered and thirsted for righteousness. They've been waiting. They've been longing. They've been dreaming of the day when the Lamb would open the scroll of destiny and reveal the kingdom of God and bring about the hour of reckoning and the hour of justice. And now as we read Revelation, we are signaling the hope of the people of God. The long-awaited hour arrives as the steady hands of Christ break the last of the seals. And, and instead of shouting for joy or one of the great songs of praise that are recorded in this book, all that greets the reader now is the silence of heaven. We have now reached the very precipice of the day of the Lord, and all heaven is hushed. New episodes of the Truth and Life Today video series will be airing every week this month discussing issues of faith and Christian living stimulated through the questions of viewers and listeners across the country. This month we'll discuss worship, its importance, the keys to effective worship, and some of the worship challenges that face our churches today. We'll discuss the often hot topic of the roles of a man and woman in marriage based on Ephesians 5, the critical significance of the believer in sharing their faith, and much more. We're so excited that you're continuing to send in your questions. And if you haven't, and you'd like an issue discussed, well, you can send your questions through backtothebible.ca and click on Truth and Life today. 
And for more information or to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, especially during our fiscal year-end campaign, visit backtothebible.ca or call us today at 1-800-663-2425. The 24 elders, four living creatures, the untold thousands of angels, the martyrs whose blood has been poured out on the altar, all of them. And we have to assume that all those who have died in the Lord, faithful to the point of death, everyone who exists in the heavenly realm simply is dumbfounded. The long-awaited scroll of destiny breaks open and rolls out onto an open table, if you will. For about a half an hour, says John, not one being in heaven could even utter a word. No rustling is heard. Everyone stands still as a statue. There is utter and complete silence. I have in some ways a unique family story. I'm, I'm the fourth generation. The three that have gone before me have all witnessed people murdered in the family, either by anarchists or by totalitarian communists. You know, I have a great uncle who was just a boy when the anarchist taunted him mercilessly until one finally shot him dead. I I remember his story because his name was John Neufeld. The one who arranged his murder escaped to Europe and lived free of prosecution. Why do murderers go free? How long, O Lord? You know, hear me, my dear listener, the groans of the ages, the violence and bloodshed of the earth, the, the callous disregard for the Creator, the sounds of men and women who mock God and dare Him to act, And the one who sits on the throne waits in mercy, bringing his gospel of mercy to the world and waiting. And then, says Revelation, comes that fateful moment when the hands of the Lamb that was slain breaks the final seal and the scroll rolls open in that all of heaven is stunned at how momentous that moment actually is. So I'm reading Revelation chapter 8, 2 to 5. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire, and from the altar and threw it to the earth. And there were peals of thunder and rumblings and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. You know, by this time, it's no surprise that we now find ourselves at the precipice of the blowing of the seven trumpets. From my understanding of Revelation, what now follows from chapter 8 through to chapter 19, the most terrible time that history will ever record, a short period of time, but a a terrible period of time, that constitutes the time of the end. There are those who have studied Daniel 9 who will conclude that this period will last seven years. Now, if they're right, then it seems natural to fit these chapters into that time period. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. I'm going to deal with that theme as we go along. But whether you buy into a seven-year tribulation or not, one thing is clear. This now is an expression of the wrath of the Lamb against the kingdom of the beast. And why is a time period necessary at all? Why not just have Jesus coming without a great tribulation? I know that there are those who argue against a great tribulation, preferring rather to think that the period from Pentecost to the second coming, that constitutes the great tribulation. Now, I respect that position, and I, for my part, think that the seven seals rightly understood allows for both evil and moments of respite as we experience them in our present age. 
The short time of the end, or, or Satan's little season, as some call it, is a time when the distinction between good and evil, between righteousness and wickedness, between Christ and Antichrist will be so plain that there will no longer be in any person's mind middle ground. The choice will become overwhelmingly plain. It will be open, unbridled hostility to God or a clear commitment that the loving kindness of God is better than life. God is bringing all human history and all human civilization to the ultimate moment. We must decide where we stand. George Eldon Ladd points out that in bringing all of humanity to this moment, this is an act not only of judgment, but must also be seen as a moment of mercy. It is God's urgent plea to the world that it will not be possible to live on this earth without having to decide what we will do with Christ. Will we be pro-Christ or anti-Christ? Well, let's go to the text that we're reading. Before the first trumpet is sounded, John wants to show us what happens in heaven after the silence of the breaking of the seventh seal. John sees seven angels who stand before God, each given a trumpet. It sounds so very solemn. We can almost imagine every eye in heaven completely transfixed at the scene that's being played out. Everyone understands exactly what those trumpets represent. As each one sounds, judgment is being meted out. But just as we think that we're going to hear the blowing of the trumpets, another angel appeared and he stands at the altar. And immediately we should ask, what is this altar? Well, back in chapter 6, we saw the martyrs under the altar. Their blood was poured out as a sacrifice to God. Is this the same altar? And it would seem that it's not. Rather, this is the altar of incense. The Old Testament law describes an altar of incense, which was used to burn incense before the Lord, which has to be done every morning and every night. The incense laid on that altar was to be left burning throughout the day and throughout the night. And it's described as an aroma that's pleasing to the Lord. You know, there are all manner of rules attached to this incense, the spices that were to be used. And then also, there was a very strong prohibition against using this same formula in any other setting outside of the altar of incense. The idea was this, that what you smelled at the altar of incense was to be different than what you smelled at any other place. Now, that incense was connected with prayer, most specifically the prayer of intercession. Listen, for instance, to Psalm 141, verses 1 and 2. It says, O Lord, I call upon you. Hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you. And the lifting up of my hands is the evening sacrifice. And so what David is praying there is that what he has learned in the temple or for our purposes from the altar of incense has inspired his prayer life. So he views prayers arising before God as the incense arises in the tabernacle and then, of course, later in the temple. Now, that's the image here. And and by the way, That also is the connection between the martyrs at the altar of sacrifice and the prayers of God's people at the altar of incense. The altar of sacrifice, which is ultimately fulfilled in our Lord Jesus' death on the cross, is the altar that makes it possible to offer up cries of petition before God. Our prayers are accepted because the altar of sacrifice, but our prayers are represented by the altar of incense. But getting back to the martyrs, they're crying out before God, how long? 
And here at the breaking of the seventh seal, we find an angel who is called upon to offer incense at that altar. Indeed, Revelation tells us that this angel has much incense to offer, and we're supposed to see a great amount of incense being offered mingled with a great amount of the prayers of the saints. It's as if the incense is being mingled with the prayers, and it's all rising up before God. I feel I need to stop here and just make application. Have you ever wondered if your prayers for justice matter? Do you remember the Lord's Prayer where Jesus taught us to pray, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you see the intensity of those prayers? And here we're told that these prayers are rising before the throne of God. God is noticing. He's caring. He has heard every one of them, and he will act. You know, we pray that Satan would soon be thrown into the bottomless pit. We pray that countries who persecute the saints would repent, and if not, that their power to inflict harm would end. We long for the day when his kingdom reigns from shore to shore. We dream of the day when all wickedness is finally going to end. And in so praying, we also pray, O Lord, deliver me from evil, lest I partake in evil deeds. I can only imagine how these words would have encouraged the seven churches in Revelation. As we've seen in this book and as we read it, we also long for great seasons of prayer in which we can pray to the Lord these very same kinds of prayers. But then just as our minds are taken up in that reality, suddenly John presents us with something that startles the mind. The angel takes the censer from the altar and it's filled with the prayers of God's people and then he mingles it deliberately with fire from the altar and he, and he hurls it onto the earth. It's this action that begins the sounding of the seven trumpets. In other words, the coming day of the Lord in which God begins to judge the earth for its sins is in response to the prayers of God's people through the ages. Judgment falls on the earth because God is a prayer-hearing God. Judgment falls on the earth because God is committing himself to the prayers of his saints. And so, child of God, does it seem to you that God is not answering? He has never failed to hear your prayer, and he will answer every single prayer in due time. And indeed, that time is coming. Take hope, child of God. Take hope. God hears your prayers. John, I find this an encouraging message, particularly for those that uh, are looking for mercy or they're they're struggling in life or they've been persecuted. And we look around this world and there's so many people that are dying for their faith. And I'm sure there's relatives praying for these people. But the prayers of the people will ultimately be heard by God and are heard by God and he will respond. Yes, he will. And you know, I mean, this Psalm 71, which the, you know, the author says, you know, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped when I considered the wicked. And indeed, the wicked seem to have their day. And if you simply have an unbelieving heart, it seems like, you know, those who are making plays for power, those who run over other people, they are having their day and God doesn't seem to care. But as we read this, we recognize that they have all been rising up before God. Not one prayer that has ever been made in righteousness has ever not been heard by God. God will act in due season. And and when I say in due season, we just need to gain in our own hearts a deep sense of faith that God will act. And we need to develop patience as well as we wait upon the Lord. He will act in it precisely the right time. 
I think, Ben, when we get to heaven, we're going to be amazed at how the time of God's action was exactly right. So let's be patient, let's be trusting, but let's also be expecting. Thanks so much, John. Back to the Bible Canada, we teach the Bible.